TGIMT Marie. This is episode 321. I guess I would just say to the people who are the the bystanders or whatever, the spouses, I would just say like be kind to yourself and you you got to give yourself as much love and grace as you're giving the person that's active in addiction and it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to not have any answers. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Amy. Amy is a wonderful woman that I've gotten to know thanks to my brother in recovery, Chris. And Chris has been previously interviewed for the show on episodes 175, 278, and he's also shared his story on the Recovery Happy Hour podcast with Trisha Lewis. He was on episode 27. If you are not familiar with his story, I highly recommend you go back and listen. Chris's recovery is a powerful story, and I'm grateful that I get to be his friend. Chris also does a lot of work for us here at RE, from videos to pictures to editing to even putting the podcast together. What stands out the most about him is one thing, though, his willingness and desire to always help others to be of service, and to show support no matter what in any possible way that he can. Chris is married to Amy. Amy is the spouse of someone in recovery. In getting to know Chris, I learned that him and his wife Amy are open when it comes to sharing their journey with others. Whoever is spending time with you on a daily basis becomes affected by your relationship with alcohol. Whether you're actively drinking or in active recovery, your decision affects those around you. When I heard Amy would be down to be on the show, I knew I had to bring her on, as I know that there are some listeners out there that are spouses, partners, friends, or family members of people struggling with alcohol. So naturally, this interview will be a little bit different than most, and it'll be focused on the experience of a loved one versus the experience of the person struggling with alcohol. I know that no matter what, all of you can benefit from this interview, so I encourage you to stay open, curious, and to be thankful with me. You know, I'm thankful that Chris and Amy are willing to share their family journey with us. What an honor. So thank you, thank you, thank you, friends. Before we get going, I wanted to let you know that today is a very special day. Registration for our upcoming Bozeman Retreat in August is officially open. As of this morning, we are officially open. We had originally planned on opening registration on March 1st. However, we pushed the date back. We wanted to ensure that all of our COVID protocols were in place before the launch, and it took us a few additional weeks. We now have all of our ducks in a row, and for the rest of the day today, registration will be open for all Cafe Ari members. And tomorrow, registration will be open for all non-members as well. If you're interested in learning more about this retreat, head over to www.recoveryelevator.com forward slash Bozeman. I can't wait to meet some of you in person. I'm going to be there. The retreat is going to be amazing, and I'm getting super excited for all of the workshops and activities that we are putting together for you all. Alrighty, let's work on finding your better you. 
Since we have a bit of a different interview today, I'm going to stay on the same topic of loved ones, loved ones of people struggling with alcohol. For me, this all has been very interesting since I've had many of these roles. I'm an adult child of an alcoholic who stayed away from drinking for a while, and then I became a problematic drinker who also married a problematic drinker. So I've been in all of those positions. And I remember when my dad went to treatment, there was one therapist who just would, she wanted to give it to us straight. You know, she wasn't really a sweet talker. She was very direct. And now I know that clear and direct is actually kind versus wishy-washy. She was very direct and she told us, it was my brother, my sister, my mom and I sitting in a room with her and my dad. And she told us that this, the fact that my dad had pursued recovery and gone to rehab, that this was going to affect all of us. She said that having an alcoholic in the family is basically like someone sneezing super loudly without covering their mouth in a small room. Everyone in the room would most likely by default catch some of the sneeze. So it's the same, she said, for someone or a family with an alcoholic in it. You know, it's only one person who is struggling with the disease, but everybody gets infected in a way. And while we may have not been the ones engaging with alcohol, the dynamics and behaviors at home had become somehow molded by the relationship that my dad had with alcohol. This was this was hard to hear and I think that as humans, most of us like to believe that we're only responsible for what we do. And sometimes we don't even want to be responsible for our own actions. So here we were, someone was telling us that we had to take responsibility for my dad's drinking, even when we didn't do any of the drinking. Naturally, we were confused. I mean, I was like, are you, am I hearing this right? Yep, pretty much. You know, you have to be a part of the solution. I remember my mom telling my dad, this is your problem. You go, you go get it fixed. The therapist recommended we all went to Al-Anon meetings. And for all of you that have never heard this term, Al-Anon is a fellowship that is composed by families and friends of alcoholics. It's a program teaching us how to take care of ourselves while our loved one is still either engaging with alcohol or engaging in recovery. So in a nutshell, it's also a program, a 12-step program similar to AA, but catered towards family and friends of alcoholics. I remember my mom and I went to a few meetings and I remember how scared she got when she, uh, that meeting that we went to was composed of a lot of divorced women, a lot of couples that had split due to addiction and a lot of couples split even after their partner gets sober so she freaked out and I don't think she was ready she she will now talk about that and will admit that she probably wasn't ready and she decided to stop going it wasn't until a few years later that she went back to Al-Anon and felt like she was connecting a little more with with the concepts You know, because the thing about what our therapist was telling us is that she was right. You know, this truly does affect everyone around you, whether you're ready to see that or not. And just like people struggling won't change until they're ready, well, it's the same for family members. It's a healing process on the other side as well. And it's messy and it takes time and it takes tools. 
I'm grateful I was already in therapy when my dad went to treatment. I already had that advantage. My eating disorder did ramp up once he went into treatment, but I was already aware that I had been affected in a way by my dad's alcoholism. And a lot of the times I found too that when someone we love is struggling, we want to fix the problem. You know, I hear about children thinking that if they behave better, their parents will drink less or spouses that think that if they become more attractive, their partners won't want to drink anymore. So family members put a lot of pressure on themselves. They want to be a part of the solution. When in reality, there's only so much we can do and we need to offer support, but also learn how to get out of the way and stay on our lane where we are taking care of ourselves first. It's, it's taken me years to understand that my role is not to fix people. It's also taken me years to understand this term called detachment with love. I can care and set boundaries. I can love and have limits. It's hard work. So this one's for you. If you're a loved one of someone struggling with alcohol, I see you. All right, eso es todo. That's it for my intro today. And before we hear from Amy, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe For years, I tried to control my drinking on my own, but I always felt alone and like I needed something else. When I discovered Cafe RE, I realized there were so many people just like me looking for a better life. Cafe RE is a private, unsearchable Facebook group that provides 24-7 access to a community of people whose goal it is to live a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find authentic connection, love, and encouragement. With the supportive and educational chats hosted throughout the week, there are plenty of opportunities to connect with others on the same path. Cafe RE is a place where we grow and learn together, and with golden rule number 22, we have a lot of fun while doing it. For just $24 a month, you'll have access to the community, all of our online chats, the opportunity to attend in-person meetups, get discounts on sober travel trips, and get assigned an accountability partner. 15% of monthly membership even goes towards our service project, where we partner with nonprofits to help those affected by addiction. Head over to recoveryelevator.com and use the promotional code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. We hope to see you there. Amy, welcome to the show. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. I'm really happy to have you here. So thank you so much for joining us on the show for a different kind of interview today. I'm glad to be here. Yes, thank you. And can you give listeners a little background on yourself or those people that don't know who you are, Chris, um, who is a member from our core team, member in our Cafe Ari community, and also someone who's been previously interviewed on the show. Um, this is Chris's wife, Amy. But Amy, can you let us know where you're from? Do you have a family? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And what do you like to do for fun? Yeah, so I'm Amy. I'm 37 years old and I live in North Dakota with Chris and um, we have two kids. Um, we're almost going to be middle school and high school parents. So that just makes me feel really old. Let's see. I love playing piano and singing. I am a teacher. I've been a teacher for 17 years now and I love it. But I also love um, leading worship at our church. So that's just a little bit about me. <laughs> How difficult has the adjustment into virtual learning been for you? This is a total side question, but how are you doing with all of that? It, 
It was really hard, but we're really blessed here in North Dakota. We've been face-to-face this whole time. So I only have virtual learners on Fridays. Um, We go four days a week um, in person. And then if they're quarantined. So it's like literally my world just got turned upside down. Mm -hmm. And I just try to take each day as I can. Yeah, it's been a lot of changes. And teachers have been on my mind, um, just having kids Mm -hmm. myself as well. And it, it's been a lot. So I'm just I'm happy to hear your passion for it. And I hear through Chris, how amazing you are as a teacher and in everything that you do. So thank you. Thanks for everything you yeah. do, Amy. And listeners, oh. the, the reason why I wanted to talk to Amy is because we do get a lot of questions and people asking about relationships and how dynamics work, shift progress, uh, fall back into place, fall out of place with all of the struggles of drinking. And I know that Chris has been interviewed on here twice. I'm going to make sure that we have his episodes linked to the show notes. So I think it's important to also hear what partners deal with and have to heal as well. Because I don't know if this is a new concept for some of you guys, but when my dad went to treatment, our therapist told us, You know, when there is someone who's struggling with alcohol in the family, it's like that person sneezed and then everybody got a little bit of that sneeze. Like it does affect every person in that household in a different way. And it's important that we that we address it whenever the family's ready, that we talk about it. So I just really appreciate you being here. And I want to learn about what your journey was and how you experienced life while Chris was progressing into his drinking and now that he's in his healing journey. So sorry, that was a lot. But can you share with us what your experience was like? Uh, Did you immediately recognize that what was happening with Chris was a drinking problem? Or how did it all start for you when you started noticing some red flags, if we want to call them that? Yeah, so I met Chris um, my freshman year in college. And as soon as I like laid eyes on him, I fell head over heels in love with him. And I, I guess if there were any warning signs, I was just so overcome with, I guess, lust for him. I mean, he was so cute. And I just, you know, so everything we did, I was just, I just, I, don't, I guess my guard was down. You know, we would go out and have drinks, you know, as you do in college. And I just thought it was normal. It was just like a cultural thing, you know, that that we were just a part of. And towards the end of, of college, he was deployed at the time um, in a different country. And he would call me and it was just really hard to have a relationship because he he couldn't call me sober. Um, you know, that um, he was half a day away. So my nights were his days and vice versa. So when he would call me, you know, at the night he had been at the bar. And that's that's when I kind of started to notice like, okay, this is a little weird, you know. And he was absolutely, you know, using it as a, a stress, like coping mechanism. But we got married. He came, um, he came back from his deployment and we got pregnant right away with Ava and then he deployed again. And it was just a really uh, lonely and isolated time for both of us. And because I was pregnant, obviously, I had pretty much given up drinking at that point. I kind of teased Chris, but he made it not fun anymore because Mm -hmm. it went from like just like a social party thing to like I was trying to make sure that he wasn't passed out, you know, somewhere unsafe or I was just trying to make sure that like he was like living and breathing and it just wasn't fun for me anymore. 
so when he was deployed, I just, my lifestyle changed radically because I was pregnant and he came home about a week before Ava was born or I think 10 days. And I just remembered like, we didn't have a chance to come together like as a couple, like even normally, you know, through pregnancy, we didn't get to grow together during that. So we were just almost two different people when he came back and his drinking just continued to escalate like on occasion, I would say, like I would have conversations with him where I'm like, Hey, I think you're partying too much. And he would, I still don't know to this day if he stopped drinking altogether or he just got good at hiding it from me. But we would go through like ups and downs, you know, where I thought things were getting better. Or he was, I thought he was listening to me when I um, voiced my concerns for his drinking. And then we also, our marriage has just been a wild adventure. We had a lot of moves and uh, career changes as he got out of the military. And I guess uh, our conversations kind of shifted. I started to have like a mix of like resentment and shame um, because he was starting, the conversation would change from, you know, like he was kind of hearing what I was saying to then he was getting defensive and he started to turn on me and say things like, he would say like, um, well, look at your own self. And there were like, sorry, it's emotional. It's okay. Take your time. (laughs) It's still hard. I'm still processing like he would point out my flaws so I wouldn't attack his, mm-hmm. you know, and as a as a couple, we didn't understand that we were just tearing each other apart, you know, and I went back and forth from just feeling extreme shame all the time to like almost trying to be his protector. It got to the point I used to set an alarm clock so I would wake up before him um, so I could pick up the beer cans before our children woke up and saw him passed out on the couch, you know, and so and I would cover him with a blanket and make it look like he just was taking a nap or something. And he started to isolate in his drinking. And I, I remember a conversation with actually with my pastor where I straight up lied to him. Um, pastor Justin asked, oh, hey, hey, how's Chris doing? I haven't seen him for a while. And I just said, yeah, he's been working a lot of overtime and um, I felt so bad about lying that I, I actually emailed him, you know. And so I started for myself, I started noticing this behavior where um, I was compromising my um, moral values and who I was. And it got to the point where I had an idea that he was driving drunk with the kids, but I, I didn't know. I got, it got to the point I had no idea if he was sober or not, because a lot of the time he was more angry when he was sober you know, or he mm-hmm. was um, hungover, I should say, not sober. And I just, I, I came into this spot of just paranoia, you know, and I didn't know what was right and what was wrong. The feeling okay. of, am I, I don't know if you share this, Amy, but you guys have never met Amy, but I cannot wait to meet her in person. We have a lot of similarities in our journeys as witnessing our partner have this happen. And, and what I wanted to ask right now from where you're at, did you start consistently asking yourself, like, am I crazy? Maybe it's not that bad. Am I crazy? Like, I almost started second guessing myself and not just losing trust for my partner, but also I wasn't sure if I could even trust myself. Can you, were you kind of just, you said paranoid. That's why I wanted to ask if you were having those almost like debates with yourself. Yeah. And well, I had him with Chris, too, because he would tell me, like, you're crazy. Mm-hmm. You don't need to worry about, you know, our bank account or you don't need to worry about 
um, my driving skills, you know, and so it just validated in my head the the questioning, the constant questioning of, you know, am I enough? Am I okay? And um, I, uh, I, I, I just felt like, you know, I took our marriage vows really seriously. And when he said, you know, or when I said for better, or for worse, I started to change that as like, I'm going to be your doormat no matter what. And it, it just got, it got really ugly for so long. And just the manipulation continued for a really long time, honestly, until I really, I got more involved in our church. And the more manipulation and stuff, the more I craved love. I don't know how else to explain it. And thank God for my church, because um, I just went after God like crazy. And I just, I wanted to do anything to feel, you know, that unconditional love that I just wasn't getting in my house. Yes. And uh, I got to the point just through prayer and meditating on scriptures where I realized that's not like being a doormat is not for better or for worse and sacrifice. I don't have to sacrifice my safety. That's never love. You know, I think on the other end, when you are the spouse of someone in addiction, you try to be like the martyr or, you know, like you want to be their savior. And it's a really dangerous place to be because like there was a moment where he, I got in the car with him and he drove me drunk five hours to, we were going on a family vacation. And I just remember I was really tired. I had been at camp with, um, with our, our junior high youth group. And anyways, I, I got, I prayed until I cried until I passed out, you know, and that's when I knew, like, I can't live like this anymore. I don't know if that answers your question. Totally. And Thank you, Amy. I know this is I know this is hard. It, it's a lot. And it's yeah. it is really hard to learn those boundaries. Like you're saying, the word that keeps coming to my mind as you're sharing that metaphor of being a, a, a doormat or just being stepped over. It's it's a boundary thing. And, and I in my relationship, it's almost like we're working backwards. You know, we never had these conversations. We we didn't know what boundaries were. What are you okay with? What are you not? And it's so much of it we learn in the process. But it is really hard to differentiate from caregiving to caretaking and, and not falling in this codependent place where you're just enabling or picking up the mess of somebody else. And I think it's harder when you truly love the person. Uh, I love your guys' story. You guys have been together for so many years and gone through so much. And you said at the beginning, you know, the moment I saw him, I was head over heels. And it is really hard when you truly love the person. I, I, I remember in my darkest moments with my partner and with my husband being like, this would be so much easier if I cared less about you. But I actually care so much that it is that much more painful. It's hard to do the right thing. I'm really grateful you had your church. What did you do when you got to that moment of realizing, like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. So that, that road trip that we took, uh, the week before I, the conversation like shifted with us and I got to the point where I just decided no matter what Chris keeps doing, I like, I will not live in this environment anymore. And I begged him to get help. And he told me, he said, um, let me know who your lawyer is. Cause I just don't love you enough. I'm never going to love you enough to quit drinking. And so I took that as a sign and I called a lawyer and I'd love to say like, I, I was really good at forgiving, but, <laughs> but I wasn't. And it took a really long time 
for me to be ready to forgive him. And I got to the point where his words just meant nothing to me. And I had to see um, him changing, you know, I needed to see the fruit of this, you know, living a sober lifestyle, I guess, if you want to call it, you know, say it like that. But. Yeah, the the trust component, you know, we haven't brought up the word trust. But when trust is breached that much, it, it was going to take more. And I know you guys took some space and some time apart before you came back together. Um, was church still such a strong source of community and support for you? Um, I want to make sure we bring up for people who are yeah. in, in, the, in the chapter still of struggling. You stayed connected and you had people that you could freely talk about everything that was happening. And I think that was huge help, mm. correct? Oh, yeah. I, I couldn't do it on my own. And I think for me, the best part about my church community is they never told me what I wanted to hear. They told me what I needed to hear. Mm. And that's that's hard because up until this point, I was really focused on Chris and his problems. Like I I really felt like I was the victim, you know, and we both played a part, you know, but the church really encouraged me to, especially my pastor, like, you you know, he would say like, okay, and what about you? You know, you got to focus on your next steps. You don't need to worry right now what Chris is doing or saying, you know, and that was, th that was huge for me because it was the first time that I had to really look inside because I'd been so focused on the outside of, of my environment, you know. Yeah, I love that you said hearing what you needed to hear versus what you wanted to hear. I, I, think friendships are extremely important and and family and, and conversations with family but sometimes sometimes people don't know what to say right and sometimes they just want us to feel better and and it's hard at least for me it's hard to be honest sometimes when you want to say some a hard truth to someone you love and I'm really glad you had someone mm -hmm. and group of people kind of catching your blind spots and getting you back focused on like what are, on you and what are stay on your lane kind of mentality. And I, I think that I usually tell listeners who ask for help, either find therapist, a church community, Al-Anon. But I do think it's a big important part of the puzzle is to find people that you can really have hard conversations with because you need that in order to heal and you need that in order to know what to do next. So it's not just about, I remember it took my mom, my dad's sober and it took my mom, I think four or five years before she admitted that, you know what, I need to stop focusing on my husband and all of the things that he did, but what do I need to do? What is this bringing up inside of me? And it's a, it's a hard step to take, but ultimately we're in charge of, only ourselves. And what else was starting to come up for you, Amy? Like, how did you shift from feeling like the victim to looking within and maybe finding stuff within yourself that you weren't even aware of before? Yeah. Well, I, I also just want to add quick that the church, our, our church did a really nice job of working with both of us. Mm -hmm. And I think that kind of held me accountable too, because my pastor was working with Chris, he was working with me to like keep us on the same page, you know, but I guess I should say too, I, I, I just really pressed into God. I spent a lot of time praying a lot, a lot of time praying and meditating on scripture. And Chris had a really intense encounter where he just lifted his hands and just surrendered. And so he was kind of learning how to do that. And I had my own version of that. Um, I had, I also had an intense counter encounter with the Lord and, um, I just knew I had to forgive him. 
and not necessarily because he deserves it or whatever, but that's the only way that I was going to be set free, you know, is if um, I let go of the bitterness that, you know, cause when I, I was holding on to all this bitterness and it's like, I was drinking poison and expecting Chris to get sick and um, it was killing me. And so I, I had this huge shift when I, I was just praying and the Lord just spoke to me, you know, very intensely in my heart and was like, you, you have to call him and you have to tell him that you love him. And I remember I did that. I called him and I said, Hey, I, I just have to tell you that I, I love you. And like, I don't know what to do with this. And then I hung up on him because mm-hmm. that's all I could say. <laughs> that's all I was ready for at that moment. And that was really the shift of, all right, you are not the victim, but you got a lot of work to do, Amy, you know? And that's when the door started opening up for me to be able to trust people again, you know, besides like the very small group of of people in my church. We went to marriage counseling. I went to some counseling at like when Chris was in treatment. Um, They had some family counseling that I attended. And then I don't want to say like we graduated marriage counseling, but our counselor was like, all right, Amy, uh, you have some trauma stuff that you need to work on. And, you know, I kind of was like, whatever. And um, I went through, it's called EMDR. It's, um, it's I, I wrote it down because I was going to forget it. Eye movement, desensitization and um, reprocessing. And that was huge for me. Um, and it turns out that it wasn't, you know, like there were a bunch of like, they call it complex trauma. There was a bunch of um, isolated incidences with Chris that was really, that I had to process. It was just really holding me back. But then it like, it spanned into like my whole life. I had been collecting stuff that, made me operate the way that I did as far as relationships go. So I've the last four years, I would say I've done a ton of work on how to build relationships and how to recognize when I go into fight or flight mode, you know, or just like how to how to be in a relationship it just in general, just with people, you know, it's been life changing for me. It is is so good to hear this because I feel like we we always say and we repeatedly say on this show recovery is an opportunity not a sacrifice but we're just talking about the person recovering and when families realize that this is an opportunity for everyone not just the individual that is struggling everything changes because when i mean when we enter a relationship we all have a life before a relationship like you said all of these isolated incidents all of these moments that are either like little t trauma or big t trauma, but you end up having to process it and kind of pass it on back and forth with the people that you spend time with. And that's your family. And I feel like you really took this opportunity of like, what is this bringing up for me even before Chris and and you ran with it. And it's only not just benefiting your guys's relationship, but your kids and your family. And, and like you said, that shift of, not just forgiveness, but resentment and all of these negative emotions, we have to release them because they're just being projected back to us time and time again, if we don't let them pass through us, right? Because I'm sure you guys still get into fits or arguments or whatever, but you learn that you have to let it go now and you address things differently than than before. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think too, it just takes time. You know, there's still times where like um, Chris and I will go on a road trip and I'm just really tense, you know, like um, the oh shit bar, you know, like I'll hold on to it sometimes. And he, and he's just driving normal. But, you know, I, 
I still don't recognize all the time when my body's getting in that trauma mode. And he, he used to get offended by that. And uh, he's learned over time, like he, all he has to do is like hold my hand and say it's going to be okay. And it's like every positive interaction that we have is solely replacing the negative that we used to focus on, you know. I love that share. Um, my husband used to go out of town a lot for work. And just like you said, when Chris was deployed, you didn't know what he was doing. And same when my husband was out of town, I was always worried, like, is he drinking? And I, at the beginning, when when we were trying to repair our relationship, I would ask, like, call me. And I wanted to be FaceTime because I wanted to like see his face. And, and, and I knew him well enough to know if he'd been drinking or not. And it is so... It is so exhausting to be concerned all the time. So I'm just really hopeful to hear from you that through repetition and through Chris knowing now how to connect with you and give you that certainty, it takes time. It still happens. It doesn't automatically go away because he decided to get sober, but it does slowly get better with time. I feel like I don't obsess as much anymore when my husband's out of town. I'm slowly working my way back to trust. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's a cliche answer to like time. I hate when people say that it just takes time, but I, it's the truth. <laughs> it's the truth or like, oh, I, I never knew this or hindsight 2020. It's like, I know, but I'm struggling right now. How do I make it go away? <laughs> yeah, I totally hear you. Um, talk to me about the different dynamics at home, Amy, uh, with the kids. I don't know what you're, I know you said you would cover him up and, kind of put all the beer cans in the trash and whatnot, but kids really pick up on, on tension and on energy. How has the shift been at home? Did you notice them kind of like bring their guard down or even vocalize anything? Has then, How has the family dynamic changed? Yeah, we've been really open about our story with our kids. Like whoever can learn from it, including them, it's it's great. And so we used to have like really tense supper time was maybe the worst. Like he didn't, he didn't like it when we would like laugh or joke. Like he wanted us to eat the food and get away from him, you know, so he could carry on and do his thing. And now like, that's our favorite thing to do is just to sit down and like play games together or eat a meal. And our son is like just a Chris Jr., super sarcastic and funny. And so he actually, our son made a comic book of Chris one time. It was like, it was like something about like the adventures of me and my sober dad. He actually, the, um, he did it at school and his teacher brought it to me because the last line, Paul uh, Churchill, his book is called Alcohol is Shit, you know, and Gunnar wrote that for the last line. <laughs> something like, <laughs> um, it said like, but you're not drunk anymore, dad. And Chris, there's a little like speech bubble that says, yep, because alcohol is shit. <laughs> And so they know that they don't have to be scared of their dad. And that's the best um, part about it. And, you know, like we were even joking the other day, Chris came by and like, gave me a hug or I don't know what he did. But Gunnar goes like, I can't wait to he said something like I can't wait to be able to do that with my wife, you know. And so I just think like the generational change where like he knows how to be a husband and he knows how to to like live a life without alcohol. Like they know it's possible because Chris is living it. I'm living it, you know. It's just really encouraging. And every day, like I said, it just keeps getting better. It's so encouraging. And I'm I'm getting emotional just listening to you because I know you guys, you know, like I, I know how far you guys have come and I'll never forget. I, I, I think it was, I don't know if it was a holiday or a sober anniversary of Chris's. You guys got some photos taken and they were beautiful. I think a friend of your, a friend of mm -hmm. yours took them and I, I don't know, it's crazy. 
I, I never met Chris when he was struggling, but I definitely exchanged uh, conversations and webinar interactions through Cafe RE where it was it was a dark time. And now seeing that and your shares about how this is just reflecting new values in your family, it's just so moving. And I really hope it just gives hope to people because it does take work. I think it was the Recovery Happy Hour podcast where Chris said like, Amy and I's relationship got better because we worked hard on it, you know? So I, I like giving hope to people and also letting them know, like, it is hard work, but it is worth it. But you definitely have to work. It's not just, oh, I forgive you. Let's move forward. Like, it and it doesn't need for you to be vulnerable, for him to be vulnerable, for you guys to keep talking and keep doing these repetitions of positive behavior. But I'm sure moments like what you just shared about the hug, they just make mm-hmm. it all worthwhile. Yeah. You know, I've I've heard it said too, there's different levels of intimacy. And like for a couple, like sexual intimacy is actually the lowest level and emotional is the next highest and spiritual is, is the highest. And I think like we had it backwards as a couple, like we didn't, we didn't invest any time with our spiritual intimacy with each other or emotional intimacy. And I think we got it aligned now, you know. And I mean, we're still a work in progress, but it's a lot harder to have like a vulnerable conversation with somebody than, you know, that's why people like can go to the bar and, you know, take somebody home for a one night stand or whatever it is, yeah. you know, it's, that's yeah. a lot easier than having that emotional or that spiritual connection. And it is, it's a lot of hard work to, to put that in, you know, into play the right way. Yeah, you're right. And it's much easier to just have a quick physical connection than talking about Mm -hmm. the stuff that we don't nobody wants to talk about or bring up on Mm -hmm. any date so it it, it's so great to even see you guys get to know each other more and more no matter you guys have spent a lot of time together but I feel like you still are continuing to get to know each other and that probably keeps it fun as well so I love hearing this and I did want to bring up one of Chris's tools because we also specifically get questions on uh, members who join maybe not just Cafe RE, but there are many communities, thank goodness, nowadays. There's AA, there's Smart Recovery. There's many places where people go and find community and support. And we, we've we definitely had a comment or two where people say that their partner has reservations around them making new connections. I know, we, I know I've seen Chris at retreats and uh, I've seen him on webinars. Like it does take time away from family, right? It does take time away from home and I and I saw it in my own home when my dad started going to a meeting every day my mom for a moment there was like well I thought we were going to the movies or you know this little resentment even though you see the other person getting better how was your experience and how has it been of Chris finding Cafe Ari and spending time with other people in sobriety was it easy to support it did you have mixed feelings I just want to hear your thoughts on this Mm -hmm. Well, he he joined Cafe RE when we were separated. So I kind of inherited you guys when <laughs> I allowed Chris back into my life. <laughs> and um, like the stepchildren or something, I don't know. Anyways, it was, I was trying to think back. It was a little hard at first because I felt like he was constantly being celebrated. And that was me still working through my resentment. You know, um, I used to tease him. I'm like, you get coins like for everything you do well. And there's nothing for like the, the, um, the spouse's, you know, <laughs> side of the, I don't get a coin because I gave you a hug today or, you know, whatever. <laughs> but 
it, it all went back to the same thing. You know, I wanted to think I was unique, you know, because I wasn't drinking, but it's it was still me trying to um, like be his savior kind of or like, you know, I kept thinking like, why am I not enough? Maybe at the beginning, but like Cafe Ari, I, I went to a meetup. I went to the Minneapolis one and I had so much fun. You guys are a blast. And, you know, like obviously it's it's all the it's confidential information. But every once in a while he'll say, you know, like, hey, I, I talked to so and so today. They're still sober. They're still doing well. You know, because we, I still pray for the people that I met there. It was life changing just to be a part of their life for even a weekend. So I love it. And I'm really proud of him. People will call at all, you know, he works shift work. So they'll call at all hours. And, you know, like his motto is kind of like leave nobody behind. And I just love that, that he has a purpose that he's helping people stay sober. And so it just makes it all worth it. I don't even mind, you know, that every time he takes that phone call, I'm, you know, right behind him praying, you know, in the other room until um, things come to pass. But yeah. And I, I like, I love, I love who he is when he goes, like when he went to Bozeman, when he came back, like it just, it, it's so good for his recovery that it's good for our family. And what's good for our family is just good period. So. And I love that you have the courage to say that when you, when you have feelings, they're probably bringing up something in you. Like when initially, if he was being celebrated, you brought up that you realized you were probably still working through some resentment. So it's just, I'm just amazed by the self-awareness of that because it is really hard. And I'm probably getting all teary up and emotional too, because I struggle with a partner who also struggles. I struggle too. And then my, my dad was also an alcoholic. So it's bringing up a lot of stuff for me, but I just, I do remember my mom having those types of comments and feedback of like well now mm -hmm. you're now your dad's the veteran at AA and all these people are looking out for him and well I never kicked him out of the house you know like like where's my medal where's my trophy for being the one that that deals with him and still like that never left you know and and I can see it I love her so much but I can see that it's just this pain within her you know that she hasn't been able to to let it go and our family, there is no healed family without my dad going to an AA meeting every day. You know, that's what that's where he found his people. That's what he does. And and I think it's taken so much longer for my mom to see that. Now we invited those people to my wedding and, and my kids baptism. So now they're oh. also a part of our family. But it, it took her so long. And that was just pain that she was carrying with herself. Mm -hmm. It wasn't doing anyone. It was just hurting her. So it's so neat to hear you say that and you do have a a fan club with us over at <laughs> cafe re we we are always are like team amy and we love you so much we've seen some videos uh that you post when chris hits a milestone and it, it it definitely does feel like it's not just chris's motto to not leave anyone behind but it's almost like a family value and and we feel that we can feel your intention through him and and through the way he handles himself so I, I do want to say thank you because you do have oh. a lot of us who care for you, love you. And I mean, Chris is so blessed to have you by his side. So thank you so oh. much. Yeah, it's crazy. If you would have told us five years ago, we would have been here. We probably would have like slapped you in the face or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just to look back and to see how good God has been. And yeah. And like, I can't, I can't wait for what happens next with, with all of this, with RE, with our family, with, with your family. It's like the best is yet to come, you know? I agree, so. Amy. I know you shared at the beginning of your story that um, drinking stopped being fun for you 
because of the relationship that Chris had with it. But now that time has passed, like, do you do you drink? Do you not care about the beverage? Or are you just one of those normies that we all secretly are jealous of? <laughs> we tried to figure out my sober date and I I have no idea. It's probably seven ish years, eight, maybe. I don't miss it at all. But I never was like I would just do it socially. It's not because I like really craved the taste of anything. So no, and like ever, even with Lacroix, I know that's popular in your um, <laughs> in RE. I could I'll have it every once in a while. But even that, it's like yeah, I would just rather have like tea or whatever. So that's helpful for sure. Well, thank you, Amy. Do you have any last things that you would like to share with spouses or partners that are having a hard time getting their mind wrapped around like I can't change them I like what you touched about like am I not enough uh how, how I guess I do have a last question how were you able to separate like it was not about you you know you were all it's not about you not being good enough it's separate from you well if I ever arrive there I'll let you know <laughs> <laughs> like literally something came up this week that I had to process you know I'm I'm getting ready to, I'm studying for a really big test and that I, I, I'm not sure if I'm going to pass or not for a pastoral license. And anyways, um, I, I went through it again. And a recovery, it seems to be, it's like, it's kind of, I don't want to say an onion, cause, but it's like, there's just so many layers and sometimes it's downright painful. And I guess, I guess I would just say to the people who are the, the bystanders or whatever, the spouses, I would just say like, be kind to yourself and you, you got to give yourself as much love and grace as you're giving the person that's active in addiction. And it's okay to not be okay. And it's okay to not have any answers. And obviously I'm going to talk about God as much as I can, but you know, like in a lot of these recovery groups, a higher power is kind of the make or break it. And so I would just really encourage you if you don't have a faith life, get one, you know, because it's, you got to have something higher than yourself or you're going to be stuck thinking about yourself. Thanks for that. Yeah, we, we talk about spirituality, faith, higher power, religion, all these words often. And it, it's it's controversial, but also the common denominator and the common answer and byproduct of people who do find it is such a relief. You know, like I, mm-hmm. I was a control freak and just knowing that things aren't up to me, knowing that, that someone else has my back, just... I can just exhale, you know, like my therapist was always like, you're very attached to the ego. You think you're in charge of everything. Who do you think you are? Like, how powerful do you think you are so that you are in charge of everything? Don't you just want to let it go? Like, wouldn't it feel nice to just share the burden and be like, I'm not in charge of anything, actually. I'm just here along for the ride. And and just having faith, I think, is a really important component of this journey. So I appreciate you sharing, Amy, and thank you so much. I, I'm just really happy that you said yes to being on the show. So thank you. Thank you. It was fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And take care. And when's your exam? Yep. Uh, next Friday. I'll be thinking about you. Oh, thank you. I need it. <laughs> All right. Sending big <laughs> yeah, hugs. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, yes. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Very well, Team Ari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to give you some more resources that you may find helpful if you are a loved one of someone struggling with alcohol. Other than Al-Anon, which I already mentioned, you can also look up Melody Beattie. I mention her on this show pretty often. She is an expert in codependence, and all of her books are wonderful and great places to start. 
There's also smart recovery for friends and family, traditional therapy, which I highly recommend, and Pia Melody, who is also a great author addressing codependency. The quicker you understand that in helping yourself, you can help your loved ones, the better. Thank you, Amy, once again for sharing your story with us. Remember that you're not alone, and together is always better. Recovery Elevator, stay on your lane. Or is it stay in your lane? Stay on your lane. I love you guys. Get out of the story. Get out of the story and use the mind to locate the body. Move the energy inside by talking, walking, and most importantly, trusting that the body already knows how to do so. We cannot fight a drinking problem or an addiction because it's trying to tell us something and we must listen. It's nudging us in a certain direction. Listen to the heart and follow your gut intuition. This will never mislead you. People often ask me, what's the one thing I can do? response is always the same. Burn the ships. It's these repetitive thoughts that always drive you to make the same decisions. It's these familiar decisions that always lead to the same actions. It's these familiar actions that always result in the same outcomes. It's these same outcomes that constantly result in the same emotions. It's these familiar emotions that give you those familiar feelings. These feelings that always lead to the same thoughts, thereby completing the cycle. If you can recognize this, you will be empowered to change your thinking.